Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. And today we're joined by a special guest, Terry Mattingly, who leads GetReligion.org, a senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi, and for 33 years a syndicated columnist on topics of religion. He's the author of the essay, The Evolving Religion of Journalism, which appears in the latest edition of our magazine, Religion and Liberty. And we'll include a link to that essay in the show notes for this podcast. So this week, we'll be discussing the State of the Union address from President Joe Biden, a little bit of a pop cultural grab bag with the Grammys and the Super Bowl. But first, we want to start with Terry's essay in the most recent Religion and Liberty magazine. Uh, and I'm going to really read the teaser for that essay of uh, coverage by mainstream media of religion, values, culture and education seem hostile to the beliefs of many Americans. There's a reason for that. There's been a paradigm shift in how journalism is done and for whom. So, Terry, thanks so much for joining us. Why don't you uh, tell us what is the paradigm shift in journalism and uh, on how it's being done and for whom? Well, the key here is that the business model has changed. Long, long ago, soon after the cooling of the Earth's crust, I was a graduate student at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And the great, late journalism historian, James Carey, was the dean of the school at that time. And he must have used the mantra a thousand times, technology shapes content. You know, and the key is that whatever form of technology you're communicating through will have different strengths and weaknesses. And that's going to tend that's going to shape what you get to cover and how you get to cover it, the stories you get to tell and how you tell them. So the paradigm that's changed in journalism is a business model change, and it's directly linked to moving from ink on paper with a general wide market approach to advertising to the world of the internet, which essentially the one thing, the thing the internet does best is divide us into very, very small niche groups that can be targeted with very specific content. And the the issue is what happens to public discourse when we're all living in these small, concrete, digital information silos. And we we don't hear anybody else and we don't trust anybody else. And so the discussion about journalism and religion in particular, which has been a part of my life ever since that graduate degree at the University of Illinois in the early 80s, I wrote my graduate project on why newspapers don't cover religion. And what we've essentially moved from a discussion about media bias involved in stories of religion, culture, morality, etc., religious liberty, et cetera. We've moved from that into the realization that the entire form of journalism has changed because advocacy and bias is now good business. It's how you get people to pay for your content is by, to use a Southern phrase, I grew up as a Southern Baptist in Texas. Um, The Southern phrase for it is preaching to the choir. And simply stated in journalism today, it's good business to preach to your choir. The problem is that doesn't that means you're not hearing anybody else. And I would argue and what I argue in the essay is that's now tearing American public life to shreds. I think we see this manifested as well in uh, culture, not just in journalism, right? I remember this piece in the Weekly Standard from Sonny Bunch a number of years ago where he discussed the change in the way people consume uh, pop culture media 
in that, you know, how many millions of people, like something like 60 some percent or 70 some percent of all televisions in America were tuned to the finale of MASH. And there's just never going to be a cultural moment like that again. The most watched show of maybe the last decade or so is probably Game of Thrones, which is on a premium pay-for cable network, but even still is attracting, you know, something like, I think, 30 million people who are viewing it on a Sunday evening. Nothing quite like that. I think you see this is similar to what I think Terry's been describing in terms of going from broadcasting to narrowcasting, that even you see this in broadcast news networks as well, especially cable news networks, that it's much more profitable for them to have a very sticky, I don't know, 5% of the total marketplace than to expand and try to attract a larger share of the marketplace. But to do so, going against a lot of the things I think Terry was uh, laying out there. And And the point is, if advertising is dead, if advertising has been soaked up, like 80 to 85% of it, by the four giants of big tech, how do you run a newspaper on that? I mean, so at some point you have to decide, what do we need to do to get people to pay for our content? And unfortunately, that is driving us into this, this niche media situation. I, I think there was a very effective statement of what you're describing and what I'm describing. Um, in the book by David French, uh, someone I have followed for 25 years because of his work in religious liberty law, David French wrote a book called Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our, Our Nation. And he, he ends up arguing, the way I worded it, was that we live, we live in America, one of the world's most religious nations, yet its secularized elites occupy one set of zip codes while most religious believers live in another. These armies share no common standards about facts, accuracy, or fairness. And then the quote from his book that speaks directly to what you just said, it's time for Americans to wake up to a fundamental reality. The continued unity of the United States cannot be guaranteed. At this moment, he said, there's not a single important cultural, religious, political, or social force that is pulling Americans together more than it's pulling us apart. And that's just as true in terms of entertainment, music, film, and stuff, uh, as, it, as it is in politics. And in fact, the, the media reasons are very similar. To some degree, this is why the huge battle over the NFL a couple of years ago with the national anthem, that was why that was so symbolic, was that it was the interaction of religion, politics, race, and one of the last things Americans have in common, which is football. And so all of a sudden we saw a, a culture war, as James Davison Hunter would define it. We saw a culture war break out about the NFL because all of a sudden one of the only institutions we had left in common had been pulled into these things. Terry, your, your piece is fascinating in a lot of ways. And you've, and you've talked a lot about how the business model has changed and it's led to a sort of paradoxical situation where – um, media outlets are increasingly listening to their subscribers, um, and that that has resulted in a paradoxical sort of narrowing of their vision. That previous model that relied on advertising, and I'm, I'm trying to just unpack this a little bit, you know, the customer there in terms of advertising is, let's say, Sears Roebuck, which intends to sell people refrigerators, and, you know, Everybody needs a refrigerator, and Sears has an interest in everybody who's interested in getting a refrigerator and seeing their ad for refrigerators. So there's a way that in which, you know, it's a much less democratic funding model, but the interests of the advertisers are in a large and in, in the largest sort of audience possible. Um, is that is is there also is there also a, a sort of ideological buy-in? I'm I'm thinking now of like Walter Lippmann's Public Opinion, uh, yeah. which was written in the early part of the 20th century, where the nation's elites were sort of trying to square the circle of how, in an increasingly democratic age in which we have more and more political participation among more and more segments of society, how do we create informed voters and? Is there was was there um, how great was that buy-in among 
journalists as a class before the recent sort of economic destabilization of journalism and how big of that buy-in was was also there in the advertisers yeah let let me put on my journalism professor hat for just a minute here and flash back a bit if you looked at american journalism in the mid 19th century we had a technological event that happened and basically the printing presses sped up the equipment got better. And all of a sudden, instead of being able to publish, say, 20,000 copies of a newspaper, all of a sudden you could publish 200,000 copies of a newspaper. And if you looked at that era, um, Dr. Marvin Olasky has written about this some in his history works as well. If you looked at that era, like if you were in New York City, there would be like 20 daily newspapers. And they, they, they all targeted very small segments of the New York community, you know, labor, socialist, Latino, Puerto Rican, Jewish, Hasidic, Christian. There was a Christian newspaper, you know, openly Christian, um, liberal, conservative. You get the idea. Blue collar versus upper class. That was because you could only go after a small amount of people with your advertising. And it made sense to target your audience and go after it. It made economic sense. But then as the printing press is sped up, all of a sudden you could sell newspapers to 200,000 people. And the economic benefit was to head advertising at a broader base of people. Like you said, refrigerators, cars, general groceries, as opposed to like vegan whole foods, you know, or something. You, you, you'd go after the broader marketplace. And it was in your economic interest to produce stories that could be read by a wide variety of people and have them see their lives reflected in those stories. And this led to what historians would call the American model of the press, which is discussed openly, you know, in my article. The problem with the internet is that once again, it's made the economic logic break down into the niches. Once again, it makes sense to go after a narrower audience, keep them happy, and then have them pay for your content. Since, I mean, opposing Donald Trump was a total bombshell economically for the New York Times. It got the million of new digital readers, you know, in blue zip codes all across the United States. Now, back to your question about what is the political bias of the American model of the press. Simply stated, it was old school liberalism. It leaned toward more of a free speech general market of liberalism that tried to treat different voices fairly and accurately and with some degree of sympathy because you wanted them to keep reading the newspaper and buying the, you know, the stuff in the ads. It leaned toward an old liberalism, whereas what we're seeing now in this niche approach leans us toward our extremes. It leans us toward very specific political views and very specific specific political biases, and then built into it, and this is a whole other subject I could talk for hours about, journalists have used to come kind of from an old liberal blue-collar urban environment for the most part, except, of course, in other parts of the country, you know, where you had more local. But the elite papers were this old-school liberalism. But something has happened in the last decade or two, and these the the high ground in American journalism in New York City, in Los Angeles, in Boston, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., the high ground was held, is now held by people from very elite educational backgrounds and economic backgrounds that tend to be, I, once again, I'm, I hate to use the word liberal because it's very hard to call What's currently on the American left, on the progressive side of things, it's hard to call it liberal when it's increasingly hostile to free speech, religious liberty, freedom of association, etc. But conservatives, because they basically hated or shunned journalism for generations and decades, have kind of reaped what they sowed. They don't have anybody in those newsrooms. They don't have any, any in those journalism schools. They don't have anybody preparing. I mean, I, I spent a couple of decades of my life leading a program in Washington, D.C. 
trying to get Christian colleges and universities to take journalism seriously as a vocation, as a part of God's creation. And um, boy, that's a tough sell. Conservatives basically want a public relations approach to journalism. In other words, tell us, tell our people what we want them to hear, which is another way of saying this new European model of the press. But to me, the, the most interesting part about all this is what happened to the word liberal. How did, I mean, how did we end up with the words religious liberty, which used to be one of the essences of American liberalism, free speech, First Amendment, freedom of association, the, you know, the coalition that in the Bill Clinton years produced the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and the equal access laws and stuff. How did that old liberalism turn into what we have now, where freedom of speech is up for grabs and parental rights are up for grabs, freedom of association is up for grabs? I, I don't know what word we should be using in place of the word liberal. I, I use illiberal a lot. I was interviewing a Muslim human rights activist a couple of years ago. It was early in the Trump administration. We had a battle over the appointment of, I believe it was one of the, the senior members of the Trump's economic and business team. And this guy had gone to Wheaton College. And while he was there, he took a stand in favor of Wheaton's doctrinal stand. And Bernie Sanders was just chewing him out and saying, we really shouldn't allow anyone to be a leader in the American government who believes that salvation is through Christ alone. I mean, that's just anti-American, even though that's a theological issue, not a political issue. And there was no evidence this man had been biased against anything. Well, this Muslim person wrote a, uh, I could look his name up for you, but this Muslim activist uh, wrote a fascinating piece in the Wall Street Journal where he said, did Bernie Sanders realize he had just shoved all devout practicing Muslims out of public life as well? Because Christians aren't the only people that have views about eternity you know, and how you relate to God for eternity. And so was Bernie Sanders being liberal or was he being illiberal? And I asked this Muslim activist what word he would use since liberal no longer applies. And there was this long pause. And on the other, on the other end of the telephone, he finally said, I'm beginning to use the word Jacobin. <laughs> <laughs> and because what we're seeing here is a class that is defined by its hostility to religious content and religious doctrine, that religion, instead of being a protected form of speech under the First Amendment, is now a uniquely dangerous form of speech and a uniquely dangerous force in the public square. And how, how, do, we, how do we call that liberal? So to answer, finish, I'm rambling and I apologize for that. To address your question directly, the old journalism was old liberalism. And there was a place within that liberalism, that First Amendment liberalism, for all voices to be heard and respected, even when they clashed and fought. The goal was to keep them all in the conversation. That's not where the Internet has taken us now. The business model has now led us to someplace much more divisive and dangerous. Uh I, I enjoyed the essay as well, and I've actually I followed Get Religion over the years, um, and really appreciate um, you know that perspective of just pointing out. I think you use the term of you know stories that are kind of haunted. That there's a ghost in the story of you know um, what could be the reason why these people did this. Well, the reason's religion, and they just don't know how to talk about it, right? Um, so that that said, that's my preface. I'm going to ask a somewhat contrarian question, not necessarily. 100% my opinion, but I just want to get your response. Um, you know, you mentioned a lot of this being due to technological change. Um, but yet, I mean, you wrote your thesis in the 80s about how the press wasn't covering religion. So there, there was a problem back then as well. I mean, and yes, there I, was. Yeah. And, you know, I remember growing up hearing about the New York Times publishing the the headline, God is dead, uh, this, I believe at the start of the Vietnam War. Um, you know, so there's a, a protest going on there. But, you know, there were things that offended the normal American religious sen sensibilities happening in the biggest paper in the country for a long time. Um, doesn't mean it wasn't better back then, but to what extent has it been a bit more of a gradual change? And then my uh, related but separate question, 
is there any upside to this this kind of fragmentation? So um, one of the things that I think would be directly related is that if I want religion news, I can find it now on the internet. Now, I'm not going to find it in the New York Times, right? I'm not going to find it in the, the big sources, but every niche has their news. I mean, I use that even just to keep up on communities that I'm not connected with otherwise. So there's there's African-American news sites that I follow. There's Asian-American news sites, just because I'm not going to know what's happening among those groups of people otherwise. But before the technology, I don't think I would have known at all. I wouldn't have gotten those stories. Those wouldn't have been available to me. So sorry, that's two separate questions. But if you could just kind of respond and, and react to that. Well, yeah, the, the, my graduate project at the University of Illinois touched on why religion was not considered valid news. And yes, you're absolutely right that it was already a problem. And American newsrooms tended, for whatever reason, to be more secular than the nation as a whole. Like I said, conservatives have long been, cultural conservatives have long been cut off from the field of journalism for the most part. So I guess what we have here is a three-part spectrum. You have this, this era when conservatives weren't represented in the newsroom, but the newsroom was full of old liberals who at least had some economic incentive to try, to varying degrees, to try to deal accurately with the lives of people you know, in their, I don't know, subscriber base. Now we've moved on to something else, and I don't even have a word for it, you know, for this new liberalism, illiberalism. So, yeah, religion news has always been a problem. I, to me, one of the best quotes ever came from the liberal Baptist thinker and journalist Bill Moyers, who back soon after I did my um, work at Urbana, I was working for the newspaper in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I interviewed him. We were talking about this issue, and he, he had a great image for it. He didn't think of it strictly in terms of bias. He said bias is definitely present. But he, he used the phrase tone deaf. That is, that most American journalists are simply tone deaf to the world of religion. They, they don't hear it. They just can't hear what he called the music of religion in American life. And they missed it with Martin Luther King Jr. They miss it with all kinds of cultural and moral issues. But now we've moved another stage beyond that. Um, that was back when I would argue that the way to improve religion coverage was just to get a, more people involved in the field who treated religion as if it was real. And that there were facts associated with it, history associated with it, ideas associated with it, and you had to cover those accurately. The, there was an infamous moment when the Washington Post had an opening for its religion beat reporter. Um, and this is pre-internet, so they, they had posted it on the board. And someone tore it down and sent a fax of the notice to a friend of mine, another religion reporter. And it was interesting, and it's kind of like wanted religion reporter. The ideal person, now the key words here are the ideal person for this beat, is not necessarily religious, nor an expert on religion. <laughs> right. The ideal person. In other words, the, the less you know about religion, the more qualified you are to cover it. And <laughs> I ask people to ponder, you know, uh, Try to imagine the Washington Post posting a wanted National Football League bait, you know, beat reporter. The ideal person for this job does not watch football, is not interested in football, doesn't know anything about football. The right. ideal person, they're going to bring a unique, fresh approach to football. They don't even know what it is. Okay, so, or how about Supreme Court reporter? Speaking of religions, Supreme Court reporter, the ideal reporter for this beat, does not have a law degree, has not studied law, and actually isn't all that interested in the Supreme Court. <laughs> and they're going to – can you picture an elite publication taking that approach to a topic? 
Yeah. This is arguably one of the two or three major newsrooms in America saying the ideal religion reporter knows nothing about it, has not covered the beat before. I knew personally when they posted that job, several people applied for that job who had been nominated for Pulitzers, in some case, for work related to religion. And their resumes were not even considered. They hired up, I remember, somebody out of Europe. Now, the Washington Post today, the religion beat is covered by several people with tons of experience and training. And it shows up when the Washington Post covers religion as religion. The problem is what happens when the Washington Post believes that something is actually more political than it is religious, and they assign the topic to the political desk. And now you have religious factors just being ignored or, or something crazy happens. So there, where the best religion reporting is done by people who want to cover religion as an important topic in American life. And they want to treat religion as if it was real, as if it actually existed, and that there are, there's money and facts and lives and institutions and doctrines and history and things you're going to have to know about. There are facts there. There are beliefs and there are facts and there are facts about beliefs. Okay, so now let, let me get to the second part of your question. You're right that there's a lot more religion on the Internet. The problem is that most of it is being produced by niche sites that are open in their advocacy about one perspective or another. And that's a type of journalism. I read a lot of it. I appreciate it. I like it. The problem is that we don't have the old approach to journalism on many of those sites. So the, the reader has to go in knowing in the, in the piece I wrote for, you know, for Acton and for the religion and liberty, Marvin Olasky says, we're going to have to start treating publications as if they're political parties. And I think tragically, that's an accurate statement which means the American reader now has to go wade into this topic on their own and create some sort of net that they're going to cast into the raging ocean of the internet and try to gather up information to make up their own mind. They're going to, in effect, they're going to have to re-report the story for themselves, you know, reading transcripts or reading interviews or whatever. So thus, the last paragraph of the piece, um, if I can read it, the sobering bottom line, when seeking journalism they can trust, perhaps even news that offers balanced, accurate coverage of views other than their own, American citizens are now on their own as they search the World Wide Web. God help them. I'm wondering how you how you think this um, this change uh is it or at least potentially could it be for the better? Because the previous model, the paradigm of journalism was this idea of non-biased reporters, of people who are just reporting the facts that, you know, they don't have any implicit biases within themselves. When I think we all were no, adults no, no, here. And no, I'm sorry. I got to shut you down just for a second. Go ahead. You're using the word, you're using the word objectivity as a philosophy. What we saw come out of the 19th century and the early 20th was not objectivity as some grand statement that journalists had blank slate minds. What we had was a set of objective standards that tried to treat journalism almost as a kind of social science. Now, it was being practiced by a wide variety of people, but the key was they had standards about how they would cover. They're going to, and they're, it's not perfect. It's not perfect but you're going to strive to be accurate. You're going to strive to show respect for people on different sides of issues. You're going to try to be balanced. That's a goal. Right. So, so I'm, so, I'm very sorry to have interrupted no, think, like that. But. No, no, no. I think that's, I, I think that is true. And I, I, I agree with that. But I think that the point that I was making is that even with those standards existing, like the Columbia Journalism School kind of standards and all of that, we all recognized, I mean, there was a whole cottage industry within the political right of pointing out the, the problems and media bias and all of that. So of course, these problems existed previously. Compare that to say newspapers in the United Kingdom, where there's a newspaper that is again, catering to different kinds yes. of 
niches. Right. as, as I look at it, I think maybe the simplest way to describe it is we've evolved to something more like what the United Kingdom has than the uh, the, the philosophy of, uh, of objectivity and the kind of standards you were describing. In a sense, could this be better? Do we get you know at least people a little more on the record of what their implicit biases are that they're approaching the story with, or at least from the perspective of newsrooms, the bias that comes you know not necessarily in the views of the people who are reporting and writing the piece, but it just in the story selection at the very beginning of the process, yeah. that there's certain things will be covered and certain things will not be covered just because that's what they think is relevant or not relevant. Yeah. Right. Do you see National Public Radio and the New York Times and the Washington Post being transparent like that? We're, we're by the way, evangelicals, you have no reason that you should be taking our newspaper. We're here to meet the needs of the following cultural groups. And if a story is going to involve your life and your most cherished beliefs, your children and your money, don't expect to see your viewpoint represented accurately in our newspaper. Do you see the New York Times and the Washington Post being that honest? I see them being that honest through the kind of content that they're producing, but not stating it explicitly. Precisely. So if the new standard is transparency, the national media needs to be more transparent about what their biases are, but they don't want to admit that. In other words, if we're going to the European model of the press, go to the European model of the press. Be honest about it. This is a socialist newspaper. Print it on the masthead. The following viewpoints will not be allowed in our newspaper because they are bigoted and dangerous. They are uniquely dangerous to American public life, and thus we are not obligated to cover them accurately or fairly. Print that. Print that on your op-ed page. Tell your readers what your biases are. So the problem was not that the old liberalism was perfect. It's that for a get religion, for example, for, you know, we're coming up to the end of our second decade. We published like 18 million words of commentary so far. I used to be able to say the way to improve religion coverage was by returning to the values of the American model of the press and treating it like serious journalism that needed to be accurate, fair, balanced, respectful, etc. But if that model's dead, how do we improve journalism? If now we we have journalists actively arguing against fairness and balance and accuracy, even accuracy, because, you know, you have your truth and I have my truth, and some truths are not worth quoting, and some truths are not being allowed, worthy of being allowed into print. What do we call them to now? That's the whole point of the essay. What are the rules now? If they're transparency, if that's the new gold standard, they should be doing what you're saying. They should be honestly telling people. Don't bother to read our newspaper. You're not going to find your life in this newspaper, and you're not going to find your life covered accurately. Liz Spayed, when she was let go as the public editor of the New York Times, a New York City liberal, former editor of the Columbia Journalism Review, she was publishing column after column with liberal New York Times readers saying, Is the Times even interested in listening to half of America? Are you even going to tell us anything about their lives and what they believe? How did Trump happen? Part of it happened because you weren't even listening to half of America. And the point of my essay is the New York Times doesn't have an economic interest in listening to half of America. If it listens to half of America and publishes their views accurately, Twitter gets mad as heck, or at least pre-Elon Musk libertarian Twitter. Okay, so you get my point. They don't they no longer have an economic interest in covering half of the United States. So what happens to American politics and public discourse? How do we talk to each other? So I have I have a harebrained question and a harebrained observation uh, to add to this. Uh, One, this doesn't really solve the dilemma that you've outlined. um, But I wonder I wonder if something like this could help. Maybe it's just too impractical. Um, but I've noticed, so you mentioned the, the um, religion reporting, um, 
job description where they said, you know, we don't want someone with competence, basically. Um, I've noticed that's not just true of religion. Um, I'm, I'm not myself a scientist, but I do edit oh, yeah. uh, a, a peer-reviewed academic journal. And the way in yeah. which science reporting is done is alarming. I mean, they, they basically just get yeah. anybody with a journalism degree, I presume, and that's their beat. And they might have no background in science. And so what they do is there's a story on you know, climate change. And so they call up the local professor of biology who may know nothing about climate science. Right. And they get a, and then right. they read like a working paper and they they make an article out of that. And I look at this knowing academic standards, just completely bewildered by, you know, not knowing the accuracy. I can't judge the science, but knowing the 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 methodology is all wrong. Um, so I wonder, you know, would it would it be I guess maybe this is more just uh pie in the sky, you know, in an in a ideal world, uh, would you like to see, like, journalists have to have relevant minors that then are funneled into a beat, if that makes sense? So if, if you're going to school, you want to be a journalist, you get your degree, you get a science minor, and then you can have the science beat, or you get a sports whatever my you know athletics minor and then you have the like the 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 sports beat or you get a theology religion minor and you get the religion beat you know the, there's actually some credentialing going into it i know that there's all kinds of problems with the university system and all of that but i can't imagine that wouldn't help um so that's that's the one and the other side again unrelated so sorry to pair two things like this but when when there's breaking news now uh, more often than not i find myself going to on the one hand, places like social media, which uh, is very problematic in that, you know, there's there's stuff being circulated as eyewitness reports that are actually computer games, Correct. Or, you know, things like, you know, yeah. so there's, uh, but the other place I go, uh, which I found to be far more reliable and interesting is Wikipedia. And I'm wondering if you have any, any opinion on this in that I remember growing up, I remember when Wikipedia started, everybody said, don't, don't use Wikipedia, don't cite it on your papers, don't, don't use it as a source on and on and on, until I got to grad school. And suddenly they said, if you're beginning uh, you know, a research project, one of the best places to start is actually Wikipedia. Why? Because they have to cite their sources. They have standards. Um, they have, I mean, there are people constantly hawkishly watching the content, at least if it's something with a lot of attention on it, like breaking news. Um, and I tend to find that a lot of it does, you know, approximate that kind of old American model uh, to some degree. Now, you're not actually getting personal stories on Wikipedia, of course. So that's, you know, it's not quite reporting. But there is an aspect where some of the new technology is also bringing about new forms of media that might be, uh, you know, Im albeit imperfectly supplying some of what's missing in the, the mainstream press. Um, so I realize those are two very separate ideas, but okay. <laughs> I just wanted to throw those at you. First, I don't think academic degrees are going to help you a bit. Okay. Uh, I, I, I simply have stated through the years that you solve journalism problems with journalism solutions. And the way everyone who runs a serious newspaper knows how you improve coverage of a beat. You hire someone with some training and experience on the beat who has demonstrated the ability to cover the beat. And then you turn them loose and give them inches in the newspaper to cover the news. You, in other words, we, if you if the Washington Post wants a Supreme Court reporter, they're going to hire someone who has demonstrated the skills and ability to cover the Supreme Court. Hashtag duh, right? <laughs> right. You, if you if you want to cover the world of sports with excellence, you hire veteran sports reporters who have won awards demonstrating their competence in covering sports. The same thing would happen with science, which is a subtopic that the newsroom, I think, avoids because it's just too dangerous and too complex. And maybe the same can be said of religion. It's too dangerous and too complex, so they've ignored it. The only problem is that we live in America, and it gets involved in other subjects, mm -hmm. like politics and like the arts you know, and whatever else. Religion has a, a way of not going away, no matter what you want to do with it. So, so to answer that question, I simply, I've argued for a long time that you solve the journalism problem of religion coverage with journalism solutions. But once again, now the economic model is undercutting that. What's the incentive of hiring someone 
who is skilled at covering a wide variety of religious groups and viewpoints and all that, if you're not going to allow that reporter to actually cover them in their newspaper? Uh, because certain voices, we already know who's right. We already know who's wrong. We already know who's stupid. We already know who's smart. <laughs> We've already decided who's worthy of being allowed to take part in American public discourse. And we've already decided who isn't, who's dangerous and who's virtuous. All of that's decided in advance because our business model makes it that way. Because the only predictable money we have now is subscribers. As for Wikipedia, you're getting close to something here. I, I view Wikipedia and Twitter, Twitter actually the same way. Um, my wife is a retired computer-based reference librarian. Okay. And to say that I have I, I have a negative attitude toward Wikipedia would be the understatement of the year. <laughs> the, only, the only reason you read Wikipedia is the reason you read Twitter. Every once in a while, you're going to get a URL to an actual document. Yeah. You're going to get a URL to an actual transcript. You're going to get a URL to an exceptionally good op-ed that points out the flaws in a particular topic that's being, you know, how the press is covering something. You have the ability to go get information on your own. God help you, as I said at the end of my piece. Now, here's the problem. Looking at the United States of America, do you see the American public being willing to do that now? I can't even judge. Yeah. When, I mean, the, the public, the public says they want balanced, accurate, fair-minded journalism. Yet our consumption of highly biased cable and internet news goes up and up and up. Now, that's at the national level. The difference between the United Kingdom and the United States is you're dealing with an infinitely larger landmass and cultural diversity. In England, you can have six or seven national papers that dominate the public discourse and they openly proclaim their points of view. That just doesn't work in America. If all of those papers are based in Los Angeles, Washington, New York, and in elite dark blue zip codes, how do they cover Texas? How do they cover the Sun Belt? How do they cover Missouri Senate races? And let alone, how do they cover your local? city council meetings? How do they cover a debate about parental rights in your local school board? What's the, what's the business model that provides your local coverage? I agree with you that we now have, I don't think we're ever going to have a problem getting diversity and points of view about American politics and national issues, even if we have to read 10 different publications to get it. The real danger zone in American journalism now is state government and local government. And the New Republic, back when the New Republic was a serious publication that we all read seriously, I think it was mid to late, oh, somewhere around 2009 or 10, they published a, a cover story about the crisis in American journalism which influenced a lot of my views highly. And they pointed out that the real danger zone is state government. That we do not have a model anymore for getting journalism to the local and the state level and getting diversity and getting points of view. One of the most liberal journalism institutions in America, and I won't get into names here, one of the most illiberal or politically biased journalism institutions in America, now controls the newspapers in the four major cities of Tennessee. One of the most culturally conservative states in the American, in the United States of America. How do you think they're doing talking to the people of Tennessee and co covering their lives? And, and basically, if they didn't have loyal readers because of football, and the Tennessee Volunteers football program and whatever, they would all be out of business already. So I guess we could end up, end up with like, where do we go now? What's next? There is some opportunity here. 
But frankly, do you see rich conservatives wanting to fund old school liberalism? Do you see the people who tune into Fox? And I'm not referring to the excellent program that's on at 6 p.m., the only news program they run. I'm talking about the rest of Fox News. Do you see the people that use that for 90% of their news? Do you see them wanting old liberalism? Um, Barry Weiss, a, you know, I mean, Barry Weiss is such a, a tale for our age. She's driven off from the New York Times because she wanted to publish a conservative op-ed by a U.S. senator. Okay, so here you have a lesbian New Yorker liberal who now is too conservative for the New York Times. She's a free speech liberal. She's Andrew Sullivan in many ways. And she's run off from the New York Times newsroom because she wants to actually hear the other side. And of course, right now, her new publication, The Free Press, is publishing all kinds of groundbreaking material on issues related to gender dysphoria that nobody else will touch. But what is she? What's our political label, label for Barry Weiss now? She's too conservative, and I'm making scare quotes with my fingers around the word conservative. She's too conservative now for the New York Times. What is she? Well, she's a journalist who's interested in listening to the voices of other people, even those whose lives are radically different than her own. I would suggest people look up her publication, The Free Press. You're going to get stuff there about debates about COVID. You're going to get stuff there about debates about religious liberty and free speech and the Supreme Court and a host of other things that you're not going to get anywhere else. But is it an American model of the press website? I would say no. I would say it's simply attempting to publish the views of some people. <laughs> it's a news, It's a website in which she is going to attempt to tolerate even the people she views as intolerant and let them speak. And that is now called conservatism. That used to be the essence of the word liberal. So up is down, black is white, in is out. You know, where are we? I want to, uh, in the little bit of time that we've got left, because we've gone long in the subject, I want to uh, move to, I'm going to skip the State of the Union, uh, as I Yay! wish the President of the there. United States yeah. would skip the State of the Union, <laughs> uh, and I will include my uh, my op-ed from a year ago advising that we stop with this pageantry of the State of the Union and just return it to being a letter delivered to Congress. So that's all I'm going to say on that, but move to uh, what we said would be our final topic, uh, which is media-related, certainly. <clears throat> we'll start with the uh, the Super Bowl which I watched last night, and my uh, initial reaction to it, again, so there's, of course, two reasons uh, that people tune into the Super Bowl, perhaps three. Uh, The first being the actual football game that is being played, which was a fantastic game, and as a New York Giants fan, I am very happy that the Philadelphia Eagles did not win, Uh, so uh, (laughs) success on that count. Um, People watch for the commercials, and sometimes people watch for the halftime show. And the thing that I thought was remarkable is... How unentertaining so many of the commercials were and that they all seem to have a common pattern now. They all just grab some celebrity and they put them in the ad. And then that is the justification for the ad itself. And most of them really aren't all of that all that entertaining. Although the one that I did see get a whole lot of um, positive accolades was one of the Jesus ads uh, kind of about the conflict of our times, a little bit of what we've been talking about here. And I found uh, I found that interesting that it was even from uh, it was from some people, again, as I'm scrolling, doom scrolling Twitter as I'm watching this, uh, that I wasn't expecting to have such a positive reaction to that kind of an ad campaign. So I, I noticed those ads, too. I'm sure other people did. And I I only had about five minutes to try to figure out what what is this uh before we decide to sit down and record so i didn't i didn't answer the question um i know if i'm not mistaken i believe ads were about seven million a spot and they had two so that's about 14 million dollars they spent on those ads uh approximately and uh there it's called he gets us and it's um part of the servant 
Foundation. So I tried tried looking up the Servant Foundation. All I got was a different Servant Foundation, which pointed out that it was associated with a particular church and not the He Gets Us campaign. And I couldn't yeah, yeah. find So it, the Google algorithm has not caught up yet, I guess. Uh, so I, or at least my own personalized Google algorithm. So I don't have the information on that. I'm kind of curious to know. It was, it did feel like this is actually a weirdly refreshing ad and uh, that it was like, love your enemies, the end. Great. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's have more of that. Um. I, for years, uh, and I've heard somebody else say this as well, that if you remember the ads, um, I think they still do them, that the Church of Latter-day Saints takes out that basically just say, yeah. like, you know, be a good person, be yeah. kind to others. And I remember somebody remarking, it was like, why doesn't the Catholic Church do that? Like, why don't a whole bunch of other denominations, especially ones that have the money to do that kind of thing, do that? And I, I don't have a good answer for that. That was kind of my thought, is are these Mormons? <laughs> and I, I still have well, an answer. It doesn't look like it. I did find a piece that I think was in Politico where they tried to chase down the the money that was funding the ads. I mean, the big the big controversy in it was that they also give to um, uh, go ahead. Terry, Terry's interrupting. (laughs) Uh, Conducting. If if you'll go to get religion this morning. Yes. There we go. Oh, good. Bobby Ross, Jr., his religion unplugged column that he writes for them and we run it. And Bobby's been working with us for more than a decade. Bobby will have links to a bunch of serious journalism pieces about that ad campaign and who's oh, great, behind great. it. Kind of the, the basic we'll winsome evangelical. Yeah, kind of the winsome evangelical approach that they're attempting, you know, in the midst of all the shouting. I, I have to admit, when my brief scan of Twitter this morning before uh, getting ready for the show and <laughs> frankly editing but the finishing editing Bobby's piece to get it up as a post Super Bowl piece. Um, Twitter this morning among cultural conservatives are talking about two things, neither of which will surprise you. One was a Pringles ad. Yeah. Yeah. Which included the, the, the people getting the Pringles can stuck on their hand. And then it had a sonogram of an unborn child with a Pringles can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stuck on his hand, which now means this is a controversial ad <laughs> because it showed an unborn child. Welcome to America. <laughs> and the issues that will not go away. The other thing then is the halftime show. Now, I didn't watch the halftime show. I've kind of given up on that. But this morning, the discussion of the halftime show is that Rhiannon was modestly dressed and visibly pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that she did the show without hiding her pregnancy and just singing, you know, instead of like some sort of Super Bowl pole dance. You know, you know, which 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 things that have happened sort of in the past. So welcome once again to America. To our, so what are we going to be arguing about after the Super Bowl? Uh, culture? Yeah. Politics? So religion? The national anthem. Why were black and white players in tears during that national anthem? Well, OK, it was sung by a country Western artist with a conserv- kind of a a mixed conservative liberal fan base and it was sincere and it wasn't postmodern. It was interpretive, but it spoke to a large part of Americans. At the same time, we also have a discussion on Twitter this morning of the fact that when they performed lift every voice and sing the national anthem of black America, they left off the third verse, which is the explicitly Christian third verse speaking for the black church, you know, and the part that's where it's openly theistic and openly biblical. So why couldn't that third verse be sung before the Super Bowl? If you're going to sing the black national anthem, maybe sing the black national anthem (laughs) or is part of it too controversial for American public discourse. So here we are, we're talking about the Super Bowl and we have two professed Christians at quarterback. Uh, I didn't have a team and is a Ravens fan. I didn't, we had to play our season without our quarterback. So take that Cincinnati Bengals. We would have beat you if we had our quarterback. <laughs> um, but, but my, my point here is even if the Super Bowl is one of the only parts of the public square that we still have in common, that makes the Super Bowl a religious event. Years ago, when I was at the Rocky Mountain News in Denver, and Denver was losing Super Bowls at that time, 
I, I wrote a memo to my editors saying I should be part of the Super Bowl coverage team. Because if the Broncos are not a religion in Denver, then we don't have one. <laughs> the, the, Bronco, the Broncos are a religious cult in Denver. And they went, ah, Terry, ha, 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 funny, funny, funny. And they didn't send me. And that was the Super Bowl where Dan, the late Dan Reeves and Joe Gibbs held a prayer meeting for both teams the night before the Super Bowl. And there was this massive controversy about how do you let these warriors who are supposed to beat each other's heads in, it's going to compromise the game if they get together and love each other and pray together. And so all of a sudden, the guys we did send to the Super Bowl are calling me back in Denver going, who are the chaplains for the Broncos? <laughs> who is, what church does Dan Reeves? Oh, Dan Reeves is an elder at an evangelical Presbyterian church and teaches Sunday school. You know, like, and Joe Gibbs is a born again Christian who worked for Billy Graham. Who are these people? <laughs> they couldn't cover the story because they couldn't hear it. That now even affects our Super Bowls. This sounds like a reason, Eric, for you to get me Super Bowl tickets to the next Super Bowl. Yes, we shall send you as a, uh, as a roving reporter for, uh, for Religion and Liberty to cover the Super Bowl. I'll get that I, I love that idea, by the way. <laughs> and I get to go too, okay? You know, you get, you got to send me to that as well. And we've just uh, doubled the budget for the magazine for the year, I believe. <laughs> yeah. So my my question with the um with the with the with the he gets us at cuz I think I think this is this is interesting because it it's trying to raise awareness of the greatest story ever told that seems like you would not need an awareness campaign of in again <laughs> the most religious nation in uh, in at least at least the Western world. Why yeah. do you think this campaign seeks to raise awareness, and why in the in the particular way that it does with the particular messages that it does? Two reasons. Basically, this is please don't hate white and black evangelicals. That's part of what this ad is saying. Please don't hate us. Um, second, we've had so much attention given to the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the religiously unaffiliated, justifiably so. The middle of the American spectrum of religion is vanishing and heading to the traditional religion side and the religiously unaffiliated side. Now, my Get Religion colleague, Ryan Berg, the, the, the must-follow Twitter guy with all of his charts about religion, the political scientist in Southern Illinois, who is a liberal Baptist pastor, and I'm using the term liberal there in an old sense, um, Ryan notes that we are conflating all the religiously unaffiliated. Did I get the word right? Is it conflating? Mm -hmm. We're yeah. pushing together yeah. all of the religiously unaffiliated, and we're ignoring something. The nuns. N-O-N-E-S, are predominantly white, rich, and highly educated. Then there's an entire other group that shows up that, in effect, are trying their best to make up their own religion. And they still have a lot of traditional religious views or instincts or whatever, but their lives are messed up. They're predominantly unemployed, low, lower class, blue collar, white, black, Latino, whatever. And they're not a part of any particular religious movement, but they still have a lot of religious instincts. And they're the fastest growing segment of American public life. Nothing in particulars is what he calls them. I think that ad was aimed at nothing in particulars. In other words, it was saying, here's your instinct. Here's kind of what you're yearning for. Jesus. Go ahead and name it. You know, so I think, I, I bet if you talk to Ed Stetzer at Wheaton, at the Billy Graham Center and some of the other people who are related to this campaign or at least critiquing it thoughtfully, I think you would, you would both, both sides of that equation would come up in their discussions. Nothing in particulars are precisely who the church doesn't know how to talk to right now. Let's call it a wrap there for today. I want to thank you for listening to Act and Unwind and remind you that if you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link for where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. 
Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dan, thanks to Dylan, and thanks to Terry Mattingly of GetReligion.org and the author of the essay, The Evolving Religion of Journalism, which appears in the winter 2022, the most recent edition of our magazine, Religion and Liberty. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.